0: Hey guys, this is Nick. This is Faye. Today we've got some really exciting news.
1: So we have teamed up with the OBG Project to bring you more awesome material to help you with your studying.
0: From now on on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com, with every post you're also going to find relevant material from the OBGproject.com linked to each of our posts.
1: In case you don't know what the OBG Project is, it's a free open access website where you can get access to clinical documents as well as summaries.
0: The OBG Project updates their website every single day so there's fresh content for you to review all the time.
1: Even more exciting, they're releasing something called OBG First, which is something that allows you to get notifications to text or email when new guidelines are released, as well as one clinical research summary every single day.
0: This is going to be exclusively free to fourth-year residents just in time for your board studying. If you go online, follow the link on our website, again, www.creogsovercoffee.com, to find the instructions.
1: The website is super easy to use. Both Nick and I have already tried it out. All you have to do is put in some answers to some simple questions. So your name and your contact information as well as the contact information of your program director so that they can verify that you are fourth year resident. And they will send you a coupon so that you can log on and get OBG first for free for one whole year.
0: That's right. One whole year of up-to-date clinical summaries, guidelines, written information to pair right alongside your coffee and your Criogs Over Coffee.
1: So once again, we're super excited to be partnering up with the OBG Project. Go ahead and go check them out. They have some really awesome material for studying on their site. Welcome back. This is Faye.
0: And this is Nick.
1: And this is Kriyogs Over Coffee. All right, guys. Today's topic is going to be on pelvic inflammatory disease.
0: We just keep on cruising through this STI saga.
1: (laughs) What are our learning objectives for today, Nick?
0: So today we'll talk about the diagnostic criteria for pelvic inflammatory disease and tubo ovarian abscess or PID slash TOA. We'll talk about how to treat PID, both medically and to know when surgical intervention is required. And then we'll talk about other complicating factors that you might encounter in clinical practice with PID or TOA, for instance, like the presence of an IUD. Okay, I guess we'll kick it off. What is this stuff? What is PID and TOA?
1: Yeah, so we said PID was pelvic inflammatory disease which is really a wide variety of inflammatory disorders of the upper female genital tract, including endometritis, salpingitis, tubo-ovarian abscess, and even pelvic peritonitis. Uh, It's important to know that this can be caused by many infectious diseases. We are probably most familiar with sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea and chlamydia, which we talked about before, but recent studies suggest that the proportion of PID that's actually caused by these two STIs is actually declining. And those that receive a diagnosis of PID, less than 50% test positive for gonorrhea or chlamydia. Wow. Yeah. So other organisms that we need to think about and that can be implicated are usually things like bacteria in the vaginal flora or gram-negative organisms. So that's going to go into our consideration of how we tailor treatment for PID. But before we get to that, Nick, how do we diagnose PID?
0: So yeah, I think that this is something that's always a struggle, Faye. Um, PID is really challenging because there's a lot of vague symptoms. So there's even like asymptomatic descriptions of PID. And so, you know, you really have to go in again with sort of a broad differential with PID. So somebody who's presenting with pelvic pain, you know, beyond PID, you got to think about appendicitis. You got to think about ectopic pregnancies, ovarian torsions, a planal ovarian cyst, like a rupturing hemorrhagic cyst, for instance, diverticulitis in an older patient, maybe. Functional GI pain can also be a cause of lower pelvic pain. And there's really like a lot of different stuff that you could lump in here. Right, right. That said, a presumptive diagnosis should be made and treatment started in a sexually active woman. And in those at risk for sexually transmitted infections, if they're experiencing pelvic or lower abdominal pain, and no other cause for illness can be identified. They also should have one or more of the following symptoms, either cervical motion tenderness, uterine tenderness, or adnexal tenderness. Those again are considered the minimal clinical criteria in order to diagnose pelvic inflammatory disease.
1: I was going to say, none of these symptoms seem that specific.
0: Exactly, and that's what's so hard about this. Now, in order to enhance the specificity of your diagnosis, there are other things that you can look for in terms of treatment, which are other clinical criteria to help you in establishing whether this might be PID or not. So, one would be an oral temperature greater than 101 Fahrenheit or 38.3 degrees Celsius. Another would be the presence of abnormal cervical mucopurulent discharge or cervical friability. The presence of white cells on saline microscopy of vaginal fluid can also be helpful. An elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate, ESR, or C-reactive protein may also be of use. And then finally, if there's actual laboratory documentation of cervicitis with gonorrhea or chlamydia, that can also be helpful. Okay. Now, finally, there's even more specific criteria that's, again, kind of thinking there's only a couple of these that I feel like we use routinely. Um, One that's not that you routinely used, I feel like, would be an endometrial biopsy that demonstrates uh, histologic evidence of endometritis. Another might be imaging. This I think we tend to rely on a little more heavily. So either a transvaginal ultrasound or an MRI that demonstrates things like thickened fluid-filled tubes with or without free fluid or that present like a tubo-ovarian complex. So that might suggest pyosalpinx, PID, TOA. And then finally, again, if you're really concerned and you happen to stick a scope in the patient on laparoscopy, there are certain findings of PID that you can find on laparoscopy. Um, I think probably the most famous or the most recognizable from medical school is the Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome, where there are kind of these filmy sticky adhesions going up to the liver
1: and remember that none of these criteria are necessary for the diagnosis of PID this would just help you kind of narrow down your diagnosis
0: absolutely so faye i guess we say you know we've tried to rule a lot of things out and ultimately we've come to the conclusion that we think somebody's got pid what should we be doing
1: so once you've diagnosed somebody with pid you should do some additional tests which include an hiv test as well as gonorrhea and chlamydia because you'd want to know and then you can Start thinking about treatment. Now, treatment should be empiric. It should be broad spectrum, and it should cover all of those likely pathogens that I mentioned before, and it should be effective against gonorrhea and chlamydia. The second consideration is, should we hospitalize the patient? Things that you would consider would be if, one, they could have a surgical emergency like an appendicitis that can't be excluded, if they have tubo ovarian abscess, if they're pregnant, if they have severe illness, which includes things like nausea, vomiting, or high fever, if they're unable to tolerate or follow an outpatient regimen, or if they've had 72 hours of outpatient therapy and yet continue to be symptomatic. So Nick, now that we've considered all of these things and we think maybe this patient needs to come into the hospital, what would you do if someone needed to come into the hospital for PID treatment?
0: If they meet the criteria, as Faye discussed, to hospitalize the patient, um, they need to start with parenteral or IV treatment. Ultimately, you should look to be transitioning to oral ban- antibiotics in 24 to 48 hours if there's clinical improvement. Regimens are varied, but amongst those you can choose, um, probably the one we lean on the most is cefoxitin, 2 grams IV every 6 hours, with doxycycline, 100 milligrams orally or IV every 12 hours. You can also use cefotetin. 2 grams IV every 12 hours with the doxycycline 100 BID. If you have a patient who has an allergy to penicillin that's severe or they have a documented cephalosporin allergy, the treatment of choice is clindamycin 900 milligrams Q8 IV along with gentamycin at a 2 milligram per kilogram loading dose IV or IM, then maintained at 1.5 mg per kilogram every 8 hours. Um, alternatively, you can do single-daily dosing of the gentamicin at 3 to 5 megs per kick. Lastly, an additional alternative regimen can be unison, 3 grams IV every 6 hours along with the doxycycline.
1: And as always, this is going to be posted on our website, so don't worry if you didn't catch that the first time Absolutely. around. Absolutely,
0: <laughs> Faye, what if they didn't need to come into the hospital?
1: Yeah, so those with mild to moderate acute PID. You can consider treating them as outpatient, and really clinical outcomes are similar to those who, uh, with mild to moderate PID who are treated with both IV or IM slash oral antibiotics. But again, if women don't respond to the following treatments within 72 hours, then they should be reevaluated and treated in the hospital with IV antibiotics. So these treatments include ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams IM, one time, with doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day for 14 days, with or without flagel 500 milligrams twice a day for 14 days. Other alternatives would be cefoxitin 2 grams IM with probenicid 1 gram orally, and again with that doxy with or without flagel regimen. And finally, if you're in a place that doesn't have ceftriaxone or cefoxitin, you can consider some other third generation cephalosporin with the doxycycline with or without flagel. So let's say, you know, A patient's tried these IM and oral treatments, they failed that, they came into the hospital, they're getting IV treatment, they've been with you for about 48 hours in the hospital. At what point, Nick, would you say, hey, maybe this person's really not responding to just antibiotics and I've got to do something surgically?
0: So yeah, at some point, if the patient's not responding to treatment within the first 48 to 72 hours of IV antibiotics, or you're noting the facts that they have a clinical decline, like they look like they're becoming more and more septic, um, you should be considering them at that point to maybe have a tubo ovarian abscess. And if you haven't gotten imaging at that point, you really should think about it. Tubo ovarian abscess is an interesting one in the surgical world, though, because they don't always require surgical drainage. Surgical intervention is actually related to the size of a tubo ovarian abscess. So 15% of those are the TOA of 4 to 6 centimeters need surgery, whereas 30% of those who have a TOA at 7 to 9 centimeters need surgery. By the time you get to greater than 10 centimeters, the need for surgical intervention is about 60%. We're lucky in our hospital that we have pretty good access to interventional radiology and the ability to do percutaneous drainage. Um, But sometimes you also need to do either laparoscopy or laparotomy in order to really get good source control here. Faye, what do you do if somebody's got an IUD in place?
1: Yeah, so if someone has PID and they have either a hormonal or copper IUD in place, it's actually not required that the IUD be removed initially. However, if there's no clinical improvement, meaning the patient continues to have a high white count, they continue to be febrile um, and just clinically looks sick um, in 48 to 72 hours, then you should consider removing that IUD. So what about follow-up, Nick?
0: Yeah, so this is especially important, again, with patients who receive outpatient therapy. You should have clinical improvement after 72 hours of treatment. So if somebody goes home from the emergency department or the office, you should try and schedule them follow-up at that point. If there's not improvement in that 72 hours, that's where you really should think about hospitalizing the patients. That way they can get parenteral therapy. They can get a change in their antimicrobial therapy if needed. Um, and additional testing, for instance, like imaging. The other thing that's important in a follow-up visit to assess is patient with or the patient's sexual partners. Those who have sexual contact with women with PID within 60 days preceding the onset of symptoms should also be evaluated, tested, and presumably treated for gonorrhea and chlamydia.
1: All right, Nick. I think that brings us to the end of our PID episode. So let's sum up.
0: Let's do it. So we started off talking about what PID and TOA were, again, PID being pelvic inflammatory disease. It's a umbrella term encompassing all inflammatory disorders, really, in the upper female genital tract, and tubo ovarian abscess being exactly what it sounds like, an abscess involving the adnexa. Gonorrhea and chlamydia are the most familiar to us, but there are many organisms that can be implicated in PID and TOA.
1: PID is notoriously difficult to diagnose simply because there are so many vague symptoms and PID can also be asymptomatic. You want to make sure that there are not other things that are causing the patient's pain, Um, but really the only things that you need to diagnose somebody with PID is ruling out those other causes of abdominal or pelvic pain and one of the following, which is cervical motion tenderness, uterine tenderness, or adnexal tenderness. Other criteria can be used to help specify your diagnosis, uh, but they are not necessary.
0: If you think somebody has PID, you should definitely perform gonorrhea and chlamydia testing as well as HIV testing, and then you should treat them for PID. Um, The treatment considerations are based on a number of things, um, but generally the, the antibiotic choices are broad spectrum to cover all likely pathogens. So again, consideration should be given to whether the patient should be hospitalized or if they're a candidate for outpatient therapy. And again, your decision to hospitalize should be based on if a surgical emergency, such as appendicitis, can't be excluded, if they have a tubo ovarian abscess, if they're pregnant, or if they have severe illness, or other considerations that make them unable to tolerate or follow an outpatient regimen, or if they've already failed outpatient therapy. Again, on our website, we'll list all of the possible therapies for pelvic inflammatory disease.
1: Other considerations should be whether or not somebody who has a TOA needs to have surgical drainage. And this is really dependent on uh, the patient's symptoms after you initiate treatment. And it may be something to consider if they are not responding to treatment or becoming clinically worse within 48 to 72 hours. Also, IUDs do not need to be removed upon the initial diagnosis of PID, but should be considered for removal if there's no clinical improvement, again, in that 48 to 72-hour window. And finally, if you are treating somebody for outpatient PID, there should be close follow-up within 72 hours to assess for clinical improvement, because if there's not, then these patients really need to either be hospitalized for IV antibiotics or reassessed for different antimicrobial therapy or different testing. And finally, uh, sexual partners of the women who did have PID should be evaluated, tested, and treated for gonorrhea and chlamydia.
0: All right. That's a wrap. So once again, I'm Nick. I'm Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
1: enjoyed this podcast go ahead and go on itunes or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review
0: you can find us online at www.creugsovercoffee.com on twitter at creugsovercoff number one on facebook at OverCoffee, or if you're a big supporter of the show check us out on patreon at www.patreon.com slash where you can get some cool swag or a shout out on the show
1: and as always, if you have ideas for topics, uh, anything that you like to change about what we said, or just to give us a little love, you can email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.